Nice. Time to boil your hair, everybody. Hey, it's Dan Budnick, Adventure Super Train 61. That was the theme song for the super fun 1980 slasher, New Year's Evil. This episode is going up in Christmas week. In between Christmas and New Year's 2018, last episode of 2018, we're taking the month of January off. We'll be back in February 2019. And that ain't going to mean anything to you if you're hearing that after February 2019. But if you're hearing this right now, as I'm putting this up, before the first, hopefully before the first, uh, internet gods willing, uh, the first of uh, January 2019, yeah, this is this fun. It's fun. It's a good time. So, how's everybody doing? I hope you've uh, hope you had a good year. I've had a pretty not good year, but here's hoping 2019 is a better one. We started this year with, gosh, it was Ellery Queen with myself and my wife, and that was actually a replacement for another show, which I will cover hopefully next year. Someone bombed out on me, and, and it was just annoying. And let's see, it was Ellery Queen. Chris and I discussed in Green Hornet, and... I was near the end of The Immortal. The Immortal ended. Gore Blimey jumped on board and joined me for Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. And then Mitchell took over for Bourbon Street Beat. And most of the year has been Bourbon Street Beat, Ellery Queen, Green Hornet. And now we are Bourbon Street Beat. Today we are finishing Future Cop. And another special little thing going on here today. So, what is happening today? We are going to start off with a pilot. It actually aired starring uh, Artie Johnson from Laugh-In and other places. He was great in the Battle of the Network Stars that he was on. It's called Call Home. It is a detective spoof kind of sitcom thing with Jim Hunton in it. So that's the opening segment of this. It's just going to be me. It's pretty me-heavy, this episode. So that's going to be me. Second segment is the great Mitchell Hadley of myself discussing episode 17, Knock on Any Tombstone of Bourbon Street Beat. And then the final segment will be me discussing the final regular episode of Future Cop, the Kansas City Kid. So, let's dive right in. Ladies and gentlemen, let's call home. that theme right right maybe call home uh h-o-l-m-e uh home is a art johnson uh home is a uh well-known uh master of disguise private detective who works with a woman named miss muskie who is his um i believe that was her name i, I keep calling her miss muskie uh who was his um uh secretary and works with a lieutenant hayward played by Jim Hutton. That's why. That's why we're talking that here. Uh, Amanda, uh, maybe TV Mayhem. Amanda turned me on to this one, and, and it's um, it's quite a charming little uh, 1972. Uh, I, I think it aired on April 24th, 1972, and, and never became a series. Just so we just have this half-hour pilot. It's created by W. L. Baums, B. A. U. M. E. S. Written by Gerald Gardner and D. Caruso, who I know mainly wrote a bunch of Get Smarts. Directed by Gary Nelson. And uh, it's 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 a fun uh, shot on film with a laugh track uh, thing where where Artie Johnson puts on a lot of disguises 
and and tricks his secretary a lot and other people. I mean, he he dresses as an old butler. He dresses as that dirty old guy from laughing. He dresses as that German soldier. He dresses as Hitler at one point. He dresses as an old lady at a funeral. He dresses as a loud like phone uh, repairman. Uh, and he, he's full of disguises, master of a thousand disguises. And, uh, and okay, well, l- let me tell you how it starts. I think it starts, actually the start might be the, uh, the the cleverest bit of it. And as you just see this old sort of gothic mansion, there are five people there who have never met one another. And uh, they say they've never met one another. And there's this sort of half-bumbling butler, and they're all waiting for home to show up. And then um, as they're sort of standing there, uh, the butler kind of makes a motion, and you see a woman with turntable, a record on it, standing behind uh, uh, um, the wall, and uh, the other side of the wall, and she starts to play this record. Good evening. This is the voice of Fabian Hall. I've called you here to unmask the killer of Charles Edward Hackley. My first suspect was George Garvin, because only he knew that Harold Jarvis had arrived on the Star of India. I don't know any Harold Jarvis. I never heard of any George Garvin. Who's Charles Edward Hackley? I never heard of any of these people. (laughs) Come on, let's go. Get out there and watch them, Miss Muskie. Good evening. This is the voice of Fabian Holm. I've called you here to unmask the killer of Horace Covington. Smells like comedy to me. And then he ends up sort of standing back there himself, uh, pretending to be the record and and tying all the people in with with the killing of uh, whoever it was who was supposed to be killing. Everyone got confused. I think it was Horace Covington, yes. And um, ties them all together. Vic Tabak is one of the people in the room. What the heck? And then, yeah, yeah, and then Lieutenant Hayward shows up, and it's Jim Hutton, and, uh, yeah, they're sort of, they're not rivals per se, um, uh, because he seems to really trust Holm. It, it's in the, in the, I saw this online, and there was sort of a little blurb for it. It was like, Artie Johnson plays an inept private detective who wears a lot of disguises. Actually, he's pretty apt, from what I can see. He figures out who the main killer is. Um, Oh, pardon me, I, I just stretched and got a really good, oh, yeah, yawn, sorry about that. Uh, but but the, the basic plot is like a guy named Howard Hayes, who's a really big um, evil guy that the cops have been trying to get for ages, is killed. And it has something to do with a Russian named Grushenko, uh, who is also dead. And they're all sort of looking for, they got a bunch of suspects, and one of them might be Grushenko's son, who's no one ever seen, who no one has seen in years, um, and who home impersonates at one point. And... Um, a lot of the episode, a lot of it is, is sort of wonderfully silly stuff, like like a sequence when they're in Holmes' car and um, his uh, his uh, Asian uh, chauffeur, I believe his name, Epstein. I could be wrong on that because I didn't write his name down, but it was something like that. You know, one of those jokes where you know the kind of jokes. I'm not going to explain the jokes. This is a police squad. No, um, and yeah, there's a great joke with uh, where they're in the car and he's chatting with uh, uh, his secretary and there's a loud ticking. And then, you know, it's a, look, I ordered the this and I ordered the that. And I ordered the med- uh, the makeup table and I ordered this, but I did not order a clock for the car. What clock? Boom. Oddly enough, the bomb doesn't kill them. It just throws Epstein or the driver into the back seat with them, and they all they all got that like smudge all over their face, and and the driver still has the the steering wheel. A lot of the 
gags in here are of the he's trying to get something done but people around him uh, are distracted so there's this opening scene where he learns about, he's in his office and he learns about Hayes and Hayward tells him about it and uh, he was going to go out to lunch uh, but Hayward's got it covered he's got sandwiches the governor has been breathing down our neck to get the killer and get him fast and nobody solves a case faster than Fabian Hall and I'm on my way out to lunch I thought about that. Dodge the sandwiches right here. Sandwiches, all right. Let me see the corners. I'll get the napkin. Uh, Fabian, what's the story on Miss Muskie? Does she... Lieutenant, Miss Muskie is an employee. She is punctual, diligent, and reasonably intelligent. I know nothing about her private life, nor do I wish to know anything. Oh, I'm sorry. She's terrific. <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, it's not quite ready. Get all the stuff out of there. Here's something I'll bet you missed. Hold it, Lieutenant. What is it? I got chicken salad. I ordered pastrami. Oh, I'll bet you pastrami. Would you exchange sandwiches with Dodd, please? Yeah, sure. Appreciate it. Thank you. Glad, Damon. There were traces of belladonna in the blood. Oh, I don't like chicken salad. What's that, Miss Mustard? I don't like chicken salad. I had to trade my pastrami for Dodd's chicken salad, and now I'm stuck with chicken salad. You want to trade back? No, it's too late. Do you like a hot roast beef? <laughs> <laughs> How many people were on the plane beside Hayes? It was his wife, his aide, secretary, and the head of his German subsidiary. Now, there's one other thing I'd like Did to know. Did they give any pickles? Where will the funeral be held? They don't give you any pickles. <laughs> Lieutenant! Hmm? Uh, Fairview Cemetery tomorrow afternoon. Is there a will? I'm gonna sandwich you got. <laughs> Chopped chicken liver. You want to change it for uh, chicken salad? No. <laughs> Lieutenant, about the will. Well, it's being probated. Well, I'll be at the funeral in disguise. Boy, they never give me any coleslaw. The coleslaw's open after. What does the Belladonna prove? The Belladonna proves that Hayes was unconscious when he was killed. Good Lord. I thought you'd be surprised at that. I am. I got coffee and I ordered buttermilk. I've got the buttermilk. Hold it! It's fun. I don't know what, what exactly you call that comedy. It's not like um, misunderstandings or stuff. It's just like uh, the comedy of, of endless distraction from what you're supposed to be focused on. That's a really bad name, I'm sure. Aristotle probably came up with a much pithier name than that. Uh, I'll, let me flip through my poetics. I'm not going to flip through poetics right now. However, I could. Uh, yeah, so the episode kind of goes on like that, and he puts on all the disguises, and he's trying to find out who killed Hayes. And there's, um, uh, he, he goes to Hayes' funeral, yeah, dressed as an old woman. And there is a great scene where he's leaving dressed as an old woman, and then all of a sudden he walks through like an Italian wedding, and someone yells, Grandma, you showed up! And suddenly he becomes their grandma for a minute, which is pretty entertaining. Uh, and just just to, I, I think to show you that I'm not lying when I say that a lot of the comedy is based on this um, people not paying attention, uh, keeping the focus, as it were. Uh, I would refer you to this scene where he goes to talk to, uh, dressed as his old, dirty old guy uh, from uh, uh, laughing and still being a dirty old guy, kind of bumping himself up against women's behinds and stuff like that, which looks a little strange. Uh, but hey, the, the, uh, the America loved it in the late 60s, so who, who am I to say? But yeah, he sits down to talk to her. You know, it's more or less, is this seat taken? And then he sits down and he's got a, he's kind of got a, a book with him and, and they have this conversation. Oh, I see you're reading about Howard Hayes. Yes, he has a vast fortune. He also has enemies. 
He was killed yesterday. I didn't know that. Is anyone sitting here? No. Yes. <laughs> I hear that there was a uh, Russian who threatened him. Uh, Grishenko, I believe his name. Yes, there was a man named Grishenko. Oh, do you believe he killed him? No, I don't. Oh. My daughter's a tramp. <laughs> My daughter Rosalie's a tramp. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, now, uh, about this Grishenko. Grishenko's dead. She's only 20 years old, and she's going to marry a man twice her age. The man's 40? No, 34. <laughs> when did Grishenko die? What's going to happen to the children? What children? The children by a previous marriage. Rosalie's been married before. To a man twice her age. 34. No, 32. <laughs> she was 18. How did Grishenko die? He committed suicide. He was Chinese. Grishenko? No, Rosalie's first husband. Grishenko didn't kill Howard Hayes. He was killed by someone much closer to home. Uh, do you think his wife killed him? It was sinful, the way she and that Mr. Faulkner carried on right under his nose. You carry a child in your body for nine months. <laughs> well, there's one blessing. My husband won't have to see this. He's dead. No, he's not coming to the wedding. <laughs> the episode is, is, is paced okay. It's not like paced like a bullet or anything. It kind of goes from segment to segment until you finally get to the, the final moment. Uh, the one... Uh, thing that that they do and uh, I I don't uh, more so than anything else this is the only thing we have for call home so I don't want to spoil the ending however there is uh, one of the actors or actresses in it uh, has a distinctive voice and there's a moment where they have to do a, a whispered phone conversation about getting after home we think he's getting too close. And I'm listening to it thinking, well, isn't that this lady or man? I, and and so it was like, I heard it and it's just like, no, come on. That's giving it away. We know that voice, don't we? And um, I'm not going to tell you whether or not that voice is the killer of Hayes, uh, but could be involved with the killing of Hayes, which is too bad. Uh, but, but however, having said that, there's some nice, uh, nice deduction by a uh, home at the very end and kind of a, a nice, um, uh, death trap that he's put into briefly, which is which is pretty, uh, pretty funny. And overall, I think it's, I think it's a pretty good episode of television. Uh, why didn't it get picked up? Uh, uh, I, I I don't know. Uh, my guess would be that if it had been made five years earlier, it would have gotten picked up in a flash. Well, when did, when was Laughing? When did Laughing start? That was like sixty eight, sixty nine. Wait, wait one second. I have looked. 68 to 73, and he left the show in 71. So every good possibility that uh, this was the first thing uh, he did right after that. Wolfgang is the name of the, the German soldier who he plays. Jeez, uh, I forgot when he plays the German soldier at some point in there. And uh, it was it Tyrone F. Hornai? Uh, was the dirty old man who's always bothering Ruth Buzzy. And, um, yeah, they both show up and he does his party pieces. And I mean, it's, it's relatively fun. I just think, I just think that, um, you know, with, uh, Laughing premiering at the beginning of 68 and then being at its height, like in 68, 69, 69, 70, and then he leaves in 70, 71 when it's still top 20. And then he goes out and does a show like this, which is very second half of the sixties. 
I mean, yes, there were a lot of cop shows at this time and a lot of detective shows, and this was the sort of golden age, as it were, of that sort of detective show. But a goofy one like this, a straight-up goofy one, I mean, Rockford has comedy, Columbo has moments of comedy, but straight-up, laugh-track-filled one, I think probably felt really out of place. Maybe in a a few years, maybe um, 77, 78, after Happy Days in the Vern Shirley had been around for a bit, and... You know, Three's Company had showed up and, and stuff was getting sillier again. But in 72, and All in the Family's at the height, and, and Sanford and Son is at the height, and all the Norman Lear shows, and all the Mary Tyler Moore, uh, Mary Tyler Moore Enterprises shows are in, I just think this was a, a bad fit for the time. But a decent episode of, of television, as it were. I mean, it might have worked better without the uh, laugh track, but I think it was pretty standard that it would have a laugh track at that time. So, uh, yeah, Call Home. It's, uh, I think it's worth a viewing. I think it would have been interesting to see, like, maybe 13 episodes of it, to see where, see where they went. I mean, so I think, I, yeah, I would have loved to have seen 13 episodes. And, uh, yeah, that's that. That's, uh, that's Call Home. Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Starring Richard Long. In New Orleans. Andrew Duggan. This is the blues. With Arlene Howell and Van Williams. Produced by Warner Brothers. Episode 17 of Bourbon Street Beat, Knock on Any Tombstone, January 25th, 1960. Let's see, teleplay by uh, Charlie Hoffman and Sig Herzig, a story by Sig Herzig, directed by William J. Hall Jr., who is, of course, and I've probably said this before, but I'll say it again, one of the films I discovered in the year 2018 that I absolutely loved is the great, the wonderful Ghost of Dragster Apollo. Super fun, late 50s, bunch of drag racers in a haunted house. It's lots of fun. It's really weird. And there's very little drag racing and actually very little haunted house. Love it, love it, love it. Thank you, Mr. Hole. Now, what's going on in this episode of Knock on Any Tombstone? It's a Rex-heavy one, folks. In New Orleans, there's a gentleman named Armand Villiac, who was a world-famous ballet dancer, and now he teaches ballet and his daughter i believe it's his daughter and his lawyer go to rex and the gang and says um something voodoo-y and weird is happening and we're worried about armand as they should be because he's killed uh soon after that and it looks like it's the voodoo that did it so rex is on the case trying to find out what's going on is it the daughter is it the lawyer is it the faithful secretary is it the granddaughter is it the granddaughter's beatnik husband fiance boyfriend kind of thing or is it somebody else what the heck is pearl johnson's magnetic sand could it be the hungan the hungan yes it might be here listen to this and then mitchell and i will uh, chat about it I don't want to worry anyone because this is the voodoo episode but we've been having some issues here trying to get this episode recorded and I can smell nutmeg in someone's left shoe and I'm not wearing a shoe at the moment Mitchell check your shoe (laughs) how's how's it looking I'm not wearing a shoe either but that uh, I thought it was a minute ago maybe it's just burned off I was gonna say "Mm, I smell a little cinnamon 
Mm, mm. Are you making warming up some eggnog? What is that? Delish. It, it is Christmas. So, it is Christmas what week. Did you everyone. Say, what did you say the problem was? Oh, uh, that uh, nutmeg got in your shoe. No, wait. No. The, the, the voodoo. Gesundheit. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the author of The Electronic Mirror. Enjoy. Um, Mitchell, how are you, by the way? We just dove right doing, in here. Yes, I'm doing very well. And, uh, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and Thank Happy you. Holidays to you and everyone. Thank you. Yeah, everyone. This, uh, yeah, this, this, um, if you listen to this as it goes up, it's in between Christmas and, uh, New Year's 2018. So, uh, good times. I hope you all had a great season. And we are going to talk knock on any tombstone unless the voodoo gets us. Episode <laughs> 17 of, of, uh, Burbage Repeat, which is actually aired in, in, in late January. So we're not sort of too far off here um let's do uh, let's do what we normally do here uh for you uh folks listen for the first time uh we, we'll begin sort of looking down at the episode and then we'll dive into more specifics so mitchell what did you think about this episode well i, I didn't think that this episode was anything special but i did think it was uh entertaining um it, again we're when we're dealing with something like voodoo and cemeteries it's very new orleans the the whole tenor of this is quite unlike what you would see in most other series that are set outside of New Orleans. So that's something I comment on frequently, but it's something that this show does very well. And um, the other thing that uh, first struck me was what did Melody do to her hair? Yeah, yeah, I was wondering about that too, yeah. That That is not a good look on her, and I was uh, uh, gratified to um, to see that apparently – this may be the only episode in which that happens, but the, this was not good. And that, you know, it kind of, it kind of sets a tone for the whole episode because, um, we've got this, as we get into the story, we have this beatnik club and, um, it's called what the magic circle, I think. And, um, well, it's a, actually, I love the, the name of the, I'll give you the name of the beatnik club. In a minute oh, the downbeat man, club. Yeah, that's it. Yes. I, I uh-huh. always love that. Cause to me, it's always like, man, I am feeling good. Let's go out tonight. Where you want to go? Let's go to the downbeat club. Yes. And you come yes. out an hour later going, I don't feel so great. Yeah. I well, know. The, what, I know. what I don't understand though, is by whatever name, the the this this beatnik place they have a pianist who's one of the central characters in the story playing too marvelous for words on the piano <laughs> and i don't i don't know that i have one heard very many piano players in a beatnik club mm-hmm. at all yeah. and two that they're playing uh, Broadway musical type music. <laughs> you know, Cole Porter, I'm a great beatnik. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if they if they couldn't get get the rights to something. Although I don't think that that beatnik music is that difficult to come up with. You all you need really is a uh, a cello and a couple of bongos and uh, people snapping their fingers and you've got it. But that that. Um, I thought was was very strange, um, and uh, that the, I don't want to say that that ruins the episode because it doesn't. But uh, they come back to this this place a couple of times, and it doesn't ring true, and uh, so I found that to be a drawback to the episode. And uh, on the other hand, 
there are a lot of interesting characters, no shortage of suspects in this yeah. in this episode. And it all does come around to this whole idea of voodoo. So they have they have kept very strong grasp on the um what the episode is supposed to be about. It's just kind of this um background music almost literally if you will that that really threw me for a loop okay. i i i i don't know if i love this episode i i liked it 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 was it was a lot of people sneaking around and a lot mm-hmm. of people getting jumped on a lot of people going out of windows and a lot of people looking in windows um and like you said, that beatnik club is so great because kenny goes in there to try to um <laughs> Uh, to try, I, I forget. He says at one point, "Should I be square or hip or, or something?" Yes, I, for, I forget yes. what he says. Um, and so he goes in there and he goes up to the beatnik who's playing the piano. You know, playing some of your favorite, you know, favorites that Frank Sinatra used to sing, kind of thing. <laughs> and, and he says, "This is this is some pretty cool music you're playing." Hey, thanks. Dun, 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 dun. You know, oh, thanks a lot. Yeah. And you're thinking, is it really? I mean, I, I could only imagine that Kenny was like, "Okay, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to be like." Hey, I got it. This is cool. I'm hip. And he walks in and they're playing stuff from, you know, like 30s, 40s musicals. And he's like, yeah. now I don't know what to do. Yeah, this I, isn't cool. It's square. Yeah, yeah. this is not the downbeat club or cafe or whatever the heck it was, you know, that, that I thought it would be. And mm-hmm. I like um, I, I like some of the – I think there are a lot of nice sort of um, – there, there's a great brawl in the cemetery – Oh yes, with with Rex and whoever the um the bad person is, and I do uh, I don't I don't know if we'll spoil it or not, but I do actually I like the ending quite a bit because it goes a bit weird, almost semi supernaturally in the way that mm-hmm. the person uses their power, and um and, and I quite like that. And for for brief, there's a brief moment at the end where you think that is it. Is her name is it Crystal? Is that her name? I've forgotten the um, yes, yes, the daughter. Uh-huh. Yes, you think yes, Sandra that, Knight. Mm-hmm. Yes, you you think that Crystal might die for a brief moment, and it's great because there's this stuff during the closing. And folks, you know the ending involves trying to save someone's life. I don't think that's spoiling anything. That's 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 a drop. You've seen drama, right? Folks? <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to be rude. It's Christmas. Uh, you know, I'm I'm so and it's loaded. a detective I, series. I mean, there's there's got to be a mystery at this, and mysteries on TV usually involve the threat of death. Yes, there's some sort of suspense, but they do all this great stuff where. As the bad guy is leaving the dance studio, to at the, in like in the middle of the night, he runs into the cleaning woman, who who says, "Oh, all the elevators are shut down. Use the steps." Oh, okay. So he takes the steps and he goes down. A moment later, Rex and all the gang rush in. They're like, "What's wrong with the elevators? The elevators are broken." And you're like, "No, they shut them down at night." And but then they, they take <laughs> the steps too. But it's like these nice little moments where it's like, yeah, he he goes to the elevator to try to get out of there quicker. And you think, ooh, will they catch him because he has to take the steps? But actually, it's it's going to slow the good guys down when they're trying to get there. So I thought that well, was and, clever. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of speaking of nice touches, there's a there is a a very nice touch in the story where Cal makes a, a passing reference that he's supposed to be taking he's going to be taking in a movie with Lusty, and uh, she oh, yes. does it. She doesn't appear in the episode at all, but the fact that they have mentioned her shows, it tells me that there's a real, you know, 
care uh, being spent on what has by now become the canon of the story of the yeah. series. That uh, so when you, when you get to a point where you're mentioning characters who don't make an appearance, that they have some they have some concern for continuity. Yes, which is which is nice because you didn't mm-hmm. you didn't normally see that at all really at, on shows like this back then. I mean, how does Seventy Seven Sunset Strip do? I haven't seen a huge run of those in a row. Well, the, the I I don't recall that there is anything. I think we're nearing the end of the second season and what we're watching right now. But um, the uh, they come the, the the detectives' girlfriends, for example, because there's a beautiful woman in every episode, at sure. least one. And um, none of those relationships are ever permanent. None of them are ever referred to in future episodes. And as far as I can tell, and I may be overlooking something, but I don't recall the the characters returning. The actresses okay. may be back, but not as the same character. Okay. Right. So I don't I don't recall that there is any particular continuity on there. Now, they they may have mentioned a case and I've forgotten about it. But being that this is still the first season, uh, and Lusty is um, present in the series enough that you catch something like that, and it is a nice thing to see. Yeah, I agree. Um, so yeah, I, I guess my overall thoughts on the episode is I I, I didn't love it. I liked it. I um mm-hmm. I, I, I just I just. <clears throat> I just think it's one of those episodes where, yeah, you got all the suspects, everything's there, but it keeps kind of losing itself or something a little bit on occasion. Like when they go to the voodoo ceremony with Pearl Johnson, that scene goes on for like five minutes. And I I get what they're doing. It's like when they show the bands playing the blues and stuff, you know, it's it's jazz, you know, they're just giving us the sort of feel for it. But usually that happens sort of at a different point in the narrative. Where mm-hmm. where where you're you're not like it's where you're sitting there going okay she might be able to reveal who who killed um Mr Villa Villa the guy the dancing yeah, guy yeah Black Crowley yeah Ar- uh, yeah and Armand Armand, Armand. Armand. Yeah. and um and, but and, but then the, the scene kind of goes on for a bit to the point where it's like okay is something going to happen here or is it because as much as I love the voodoo I tend to get a little drifty when I watch ceremonies of voodoo on mm-hmm. TV um, because the, the, the rhythmic beat and the, the dancing and it's very sort of hypnotic. And suddenly I'm like, Oh, what? Hey, where am I? Oh, we're still dancing. Okay. Well, frankly, and, the music they were using in the ceremony was more beatnik than the music. <laughs> uh, that, that, that explain that explains my momentary confusion because oh. the note I have says magic circle, more beatnik music than downbeat club. <laughs> yes. And, yep. uh, it was actually, you know, I, I had a feeling like I was watching some kind of modern interpretive dance. It was yes, a very yeah. good scene, but yeah, it, was, yeah. you know, it wasn't quite um, live and let die with James Bond. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, it, it's, it's not one that completely, I think it's a good episode. I don't think it's a great mm-hmm. one, but it definitely has its more. I think the ending is great. There's that nice fight scene in the graveyard. I think the, um, yes. I, I think the, 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 the killer sort of um, uh, haunting around the place in shadows and burning things at graves. I like that. Um, mm-hmm. But, but the episode never quite fully, fully picks me up and throws me across the room as it were, but I don't, I don't dislike it in any way. No, you will. I use, I always have, and I've mentioned it the, in this, um, 
in these shows before that my rule of thumb has always been, is this an episode that will make you stop watching a series? And the answer is clearly no. No. Um, we're, we're halfway through the series, however many episodes you were mentioning there. You're hooked on the series by now, and you're saying to yourself, they're entitled to have a down episode once in a while. And in fact, um, uh, spoiler alert, I think there's another down episode coming in two or three of these. But, but, um, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't phase me. It just tells me that this was a show that I might be doing something else while I'm watching it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think too, um, uh, the, just the fact that it's it's episode 17 we're getting the voodoo episode now I expected there to be one yes. in this because it's in New Orleans um, and and they I guess they do as as voodoo-y as well as you can do possibly with voodoo on network television in 1960 I don't know you know that you could go super crazy on no. it or anything but this kind of it, it, it almost feels like and I don't I haven't watched ahead um, but I almost wonder if there'll be a later voodoo episode that's a little more I don't know if energetic mm. is the word, but a little like we've already set the rules of what voodoo is, and now mm -hmm. some, something has returned and we're doing it again, sort of bigger and better. Well, I would I, almost certainly, uh, I'm making, an, and I'm making a, an assumption, a presumption in this case, but I am thinking that for the audience watching this in 1960, mm. um, they would have been quite satisfied to accept that as a voodoo service um it would have been easily recognizable to them that that's where they were going which is again coming around to the beatnik to the downbeat which is why that was a disappointing scene because you've had you've had plenty of series on tv by now dealing with um beatniks for example you've, you've got Dobie gillis and you've got peter gunn as to just two off of the top of my head again viewers know what to expect from beatniks and too marvelous for words is not uh <laughs> is not what you're thinking of you're thinking of the bell telephone hour if yeah, you're yeah, watching yeah. <laughs> and, and they even actually have uh there, there's a nice moment with the beatnik guy where um uh, where I think Rex says something to him like, because uh, um, uh, um, uh, Crystal gets kidnapped at one point, in it, and Rex says to her beatnik pal, um, uh, um, oh, and I do have written down here, um, what does she want out of life? All she wanted was love, my love. That's the quote from the beatnik guy, which I love. <laughs> that's that's very, uh, I guess that's a beatnik for you. But there there is a moment where he says something like, Rex says, so what was she afraid of? And he says, she was afraid of everything, man. That's why I'm, I, I, I'm afraid of everything too, the world, the yeah. way it's going. That, that's why we, that's why we, that's why we, and he says something, he kind of denigrates being a beatnik. But he kind of mm -hmm. says like, there, there's a brief moment where you kind of feel like this is the only place he feels like he can go, even if he's really like in a piano bar somewhere you know off of broadway or something that's like that very i think that's a very good scene because uh for a show that is action adventure with a healthy dose of humor it's actually kind of a serious moment because he's uh, i think that's tony in the uh and and he's talking quite seriously with with rex about 
the beatnik generation and what they're facing. And again, you put this into the context of the times. They're worried about the bomb. They're worried about the Cold War. They're worried about all, all sorts of things. There's a, there is a level of anxiety that exists in American culture, in American society, as the 50s turn into the 60s. And uh, this would have been, I think, a very effective scene at the time. And so it's not that it isn't now, but the, I I always try to put myself into the shoes of the the person watching it when it's actually on, and I think that would have been a, a very interesting scene. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> whether or not you would have wanted to listen to any beatnik music after that, I understand completely. Mm. But I I think there would be a moment where you're like, okay, okay, yeah, I get, I I I would hope maybe for a brief second you think, okay, I get what these crazy kids are up to with their yeah. wacky music and their their berets and their their uh, you know, uh, goatees and stuff. I understand a bit of what they're up to. They're scared and they're frightened and they're backing in. They're they're going into the only place where they feel safe, which is in this place that's completely sort of disconnected from everything mm-hmm. else. And I for, and Rex kind of gives them a look like, okay, I got you, but I still got to catch. You know, I still got to rescue your wife and, yeah. and things like that. So well, and remember too that you've got at that point, uh, if you if you look around in uh, in the culture at large, you've got peanuts. Linus has his security uh-huh. blanket. Yeah. So there, there. I think that that fits in very nicely with the the general tenor of the times. And I and I think you're right. The Rex is well. You know, that's great. That's swell. When I go into um, uh, you know sociology, I will keep that in mind. But in the meantime. I was trying not to get killed in the graveyard the other yes. night by the masked man. So let's <laughs> let's see if we can move this on. Um uh what else do you have? I um uh, you know, and I'm wondering too when when I, Tony uh when he says that, if that's why he's playing sort of I don't know if they were considered standards in nineteen sixty, but stuff stuff like we might call like um, mm-hmm. musical standards because he's like, Well, I don't I, you know, I can dress like a beatnik and talk like them. That doesn't mean I have to like their music. I that's can enjoy. A, that's I a can, good point. I can, you know, that, that there's no rule that says I have to stand up here and you know do those like revolution. Mm-hmm. I see a generation falling, falling. And you know, and, yeah. and they, they're we're all wearing berets and we deserve respect. You know, something like that. You know, it's and he's just like, no, I just want to play too marvelous, too marvelous for words. Yeah, come on, I can't have fun. I'm a beatnik. I can't have fun. It's That's a nice it. twist, actually, to use to use that song. As I was talking about that, I was thinking that the words, the lyrics, are ironic at the very least. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um. Uh. So, uh, what else do you have for this one? I'm going to do one more scan of my notes. I think I got most of what I had. Uh, there were a couple of scenes near the end that I really liked. One of them is when, um, when the we're headed for the climactic scene mm-hmm. in the uh, cemetery and um kenny makes a comment about uh their he's headed for marble city that came that comes straight out of kooky in 77 sunset strip that kind of kookyism uh and and the 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 um the police detective looks kind of blankly at him for a second and kenny says the cemetery and uh, but marble city was (laughs) was a great line <laughs> yeah is is there um uh did did 
do, do you think Kenny liked going into the what he thought was the beatnik place? Because there's a couple moments where he says something like, like uh, to either Rex or Cal, so I'm like, okay, Dad, or something like that. He says something, <laughs> something like hip talk, and it's like Kenny doesn't yeah. talk like that. No, he doesn't. And but uh, by the end of the episode, he is. So I'm again that that that's kooky. That's not Kenny. Yeah. And unless this is kind of starting to rub off on him, I wonder. Yeah, if it's like maybe he watches Seventy Seven Sunset Strip, or maybe. Um, Maybe uh, this was like a uh, because uh, like a point in the series mm-hmm. where like the like maybe the producers were able to pause and go okay our ratings aren't as good as Seventy Seven Sunset Strip and Hawaiian Eye what can we do well have Kenny talk a bit more like a beatnik or something well like it would that. be you know the the idea that Kenny was actually watching Seventy Seven Sunset Strip on TV would be very meta because uh, because you've already had the crossover from Hawaiian Eye. You've had a couple of crossovers there. And um, I don't think we're spoiling things by telling people that Kenny winds up being a character in Surfside 6. Yes. Yeah. And so, and 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 Rex winds up on Seventy Seven Sunset Strip. <laughs> so, for them to make mention of uh, to a T, and uh, you you know, there's a scene in, I believe it's in in Sunset Strip where uh, James Garner is in playing himself, being oh. interviewed by I think it's Jim Bacon about being on Maverick. Wow. And so cool. there is there's all this cross pollination where they're talking about the different WB shows on these WB shows. Mm-hmm. So it would be just like them to introduce a show as an actual TV show yeah. and then have the characters inhabit that very show. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to see that. I don't think it's... Well, you know what? Before we end, I guess we we can mention there is an actual proper sort of meta-esque moment in this episode, right at the very end. Mm, yes. yes. You're thinking would you, would the you very like last to, scene. Yes. Would, would you like to tell folks what happens? It's not a spoiler, folks. No, it's, it is Everyone's safe and, and well. And what, what happens? Well, Rex is launched on another of his cooking experiments. And so he's got, he's got Cal... And Kenny and Melody, they're all seated around the table, and he's telling them what he's put into this concoction, which is pretty much everything they talked about in the voodoo recipe of it's all that's missing is an eye of newt or something like that. And they all give the proper um, disgusting looks and walk out. So it's, it leaves Rex and his food. And in that instant, you understand exactly what he's up to, that he was telling them this so that he could have all of it for himself. <laughs> and he looks right at the camera and winks. Yes. And I think it's the first time the show has ever broken the fourth wall. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. <laughs> that was it, like, is, I, it is a wonderful little scene. Yeah, yeah, and it ha- it happened, and I thought, did I just see that? That's like what? <laughs> oh yeah, it's 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 a really it's a really nice little moment. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what what else do you have? I I actually might be all done. I think that's 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 uh, pretty much it. Again, it it is a it it it's a it's a nice, not great, but mm-hmm. uh, certainly a, a pleasant episode. Yes. To watch. Yeah. Yeah, it's got a decent mystery to it, and there's some. Uh, some some moments of um good suspense i think mm-hmm. and, and and yeah, the voodoo is fun so yeah unlike unlike some mysteries the who done it is actually 
kind of a mystery you don't know yeah, right away. It, it is pretty good, yeah. Uh, so I will do scan one more time. Yeah, I think I'm good. Um, so uh, I guess we wrap this up. I uh, I feel like there's one more thing I wanted to say. Not really. Oh, oh, there was one more. Ah. Um, and that is that um, in the opening scene at the ballet school where Armand is talking to Crystal, his granddaughter. Right. Mm, yes. Right. Yes. And he, he talks to her, and it's interesting because when he says something to her, Crystal, what is wrong with you today? You're not paying attention. And Crystal says, I don't know what's wrong with me today. I, you know, or something like that. And I thought, ooh, she's not very good. But then when her beatnik husband shows up, she's she's like, she's like, oh hey, let's go to the club. All right, let's do it. And I kind of slipped my mind that she talked like that. I thought maybe she had a bad day. But then in the end, when something specific mm. is happening to yes. her, and it's like the the bad person is saying. All right, you poisoned your grandfather. I poisoned my grandfather. That I was like, comes oh. right back to that. Yep. Oh my, yeah, and you realize that opening scene, that was a bad acting. She was under the influence of the bad guy mm -hmm. right there. And I, I thought that's a nice, another nice moment in there that I really liked. Um, but that is actually the last moment I think I have for Knock on Any Tombstone. <laughs> uh, oh, Mitchell, where, 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 can we, uh, where can we find you online? You, you can with, find with me. Your, with your shoes off. Yeah. <laughs> my shoes off and my feet up, which is where I am right now. I'm at, my website is itsabouttv.com. And I'm also, uh, if you go to that website, I'm on uh, Facebook and Twitter both. And uh, I uh, have a great time uh, talking about classic television and American culture. Yay. Thank you so much. And, and your book, The Electronic Mirror, is still available after Christmas. It, it is. Can be, it can do be a not, late Christmas present. Yes. It, do not think that once we've gotten, when now that we're uh, past Christmas, do not think that this book ceases to be yes. for sale. No, it's still out there, folks. It's still out there. Trust, trust us. It has we're, your we're, name on it. Yes, trust us. We're Mitchell and Dale. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I'm just going to leave with my favorite line from the episode, and uh, we'll go on to the next segment. <clears throat> Let me deliver this well. All she wanted was love. My love. Future Cop Episode 5, The Kansas City Kid, aired April 30th, 1977, directed by Robert Douglas, written by Harold Livingston. Yes, the last of the regular episodes of Future Cop here, and I'm recording this on December 26th, 2018, so it's the day after Christmas. I got some fun treats here. I got uh, My wife got me Brewster McCloud, one of my favorite films of all time on Blu-ray. 
the uh, Aero Video De Niro De Palma uh, 2 Blu-ray set. About Time, the book, Volume 8, Ted Wood and Dorothy Ale, which is fun. And uh, what else did I get? Oh, Power of the Dialects, Doctor Who. I got Doctor Who, not a short-lived show, not going to be discussed on this podcast, but it's fun. It's, eh, yeah, you know, hopefully this, uh, yeah, whatever. You know, this episode's going up around Christmas week, New Year's, uh, 2018, 2019. If you're listening to it some other time, welcome, enjoy. Let me adjust my microphone. The microphone got moved. This is the last time I used my microphone, just for sort of, uh, just to keep it tuned in, was on the 17th or 18th of December. This is the 26th, doing the Made for TV Mayhem Christmas one, where we discuss Rich Little's Christmas carols. So let's dive into the final episode of Future Cop. Uh, Cleaver's pissed off at something. He goes to meet a Mr. Geary, T. Geary. And he talks about, your dad wouldn't da-da-da, you know, so obviously he knew Mr. Geary's dad. Mr. Geary has embezzled a bunch of money from the Police uh, Benevolent Fund uh, Trust, and Cleaver is the treasurer of this trust. Uh, I guess $23,000 have been embezzled by Mr. Geary. Mr. Geary got involved with a woman named Eve DeFalco, played by Joan Collins, doing an American accent. And she embezzled, like, Oh, a lot, like $100,000, $70,000, a lot of money from him. Oh, she she didn't embezzle. She won it from him, and he embezzled much of it, including the $23,000 from the uh, policeman's fund. So Cleaver's trying to figure out how to deal with that. Geary goes to see Eve and has his car screwed around with and ends up well, actually, it's weird because they they say at one point that he's not going to die, but then they don't refer to him again. So I guess he he's as good as dead in the episode. So Cleaver and Bundy and Haven go undercover. Haven goes as sort of like a, um, a hard-boiled detective kind of guy. Yes, he's doing another accent, folks, so we can talk about that in a moment. He goes undercover and he meets up with Joan, a.k.a. Eve, and gets involved in one of her big games to try to win back the $23,000 using Cleaver's savings account, which is $11,875.22. I could have got some of that wrong, but that's most of it. But so, so it's basically a someone got shivved, um, gambling shivved by... Uh, uh, this woman and her accomplice and our guys got to go back in and win the money back using their android robot cop friend yeah mm, okay let's what hmm what did uh yeah what, this episode let me start with i bought the two dvd set from mill creek about a year ago a little over a year ago i watched the tv movie which we talked about in a minisode some time ago which i enjoyed but i didn't watch the others i've all of the five the five main ones or five slash six if mad mad bomber if you count that as a two-parter i watch for this and I found it pretty uneven. I found it... We'll talk about that at the end. But, uh, yeah, I, I... You know, I, I didn't regret the set. It's a Mill Creek set, so it wasn't an expensive set. But I popped in this episode, so I'm watching it, and I'm standing there. and You know, I'm, I'm writing a book on the Henningverse, which you, you can look it up. I don't know if that's actually a term 
a proper term or something I invented, but you could try to look up anyways. So I spent the first half of my day, December 26th, writing that. And then uh, about an hour and a half ago, I started watching this episode. Five minutes in, at the point where Cleaver says to Gary, so what'd you lose the money on? Horses, women? And it cuts to Gary, and Gary goes, yeah. DVD freezes. Well, I... Then there's... Yeah. And suddenly we're 28 minutes in. It hops ahead 23 minutes to Borgnine, or Cleaver, at the bank taking out his savings to use on this sting. It's funny that that he does that, though, that he doesn't actually go to the cops and say, hey, this person I brought on board has embezzled our money. I'm, you know, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. You know, but he instantly go. It almost makes it feel like less of a cop or more like a private detective show than a cop show or something like that. Because this is the second episode in a row where they go sort of outside of the law to do what they need to do which is weird because there are technically only the five slash six episodes and technically the third slash second half of the second involves them doing undercover stuff outside of the law so if it were six three of the six they go outside the law they probably go outside of it more than that that's weird okay having said that at that moment it freezes and it hops ahead 20 minutes so i had to go online and mill creek is offering this episode for me to purchase on youtube for two dollars i bought the set for a total of like eight dollars i'm not paying two dollars for this so i was able to find the 23 minutes elsewhere figuring i own the dvd and i'm okay with it so i watched the rest and so he's in the bank and i put the dvd back on we get to the point where we have the big game going, and I'm going to spoil it. I'm going to spoil all over it. Hey, they win in the end. That's There's a spoiler for you. But I, I'm watching it, and there's a point where Joan Collins' character, we're in the middle of the first big ham, and she's getting some information dealt to her in an earpiece. And then, freezes up again. And suddenly it hops ahead to the very end of the episode of the main menu. I'm like, holy crap. So I had to watch all but, jeez, five, like 15 minutes of this fifth or so of this 50 minute episode online, even though I own the DVD, which annoyed me because if this had been Girl on the Ledge, I would have been going, yes, I'm going to follow this. This episode was is so generic. This episode, yeah. Here's the thing about it. The, the the main things, the three main things, I guess, that Haven does that are robot-y, android-y, are there's a sequence where they look at Geary's car and he figures out that someone cut the brake line and this, that, and the other thing. And he's doing it in a very robotic way. And Bundy is like, what? How did you know that? And Cleaver has to keep correcting him. And it's not terribly interesting. And as I was watching it, I thought this would have been more interesting. If it was like a, a an actual person, like a Sherlock Holmes type person going, oh, yes, this is here. Well, I don't see the hole in the brake line. No, no, it's right here. You know, that kind of thing. But instead, it just comes out like mm, it would have been better if they had done that. The second thing is the accent. Now, I mentioned in the previous episode when he does like a Clark Gable sort of hunky Hollywood guy kind of thing that I found it a little embarrassing for the actor 
He does more of that here. He does the hard-boiled detective kind of thing. And it's even a little bit more embarrassing. I... I, I didn't like it. Whenever he did the voice, I wasn't convinced. I didn't like it. I don't know why they had him do that. You know, it's like the main thing he does as a robot cop in this episode and the last one is he does a bad accent. I don't understand why that's interesting. Maybe there's, you know, I in 1977, I was four. You know, this was the time, you know, let's, when was this? Oh, April 77. Okay, April 77. So we are literally three weeks away from Star Wars. So uh, sci-fi is about to hit a whole new peak. And sci-fi that was this, that ain't sci-fi at all. That's this strange whatever this is. Is, uh, yeah, not working. You know, it's... You know, I love my Gemini man. I love my $6 million man. I love my bionic woman. This ain't doing it. Having a guy do a bad accent isn't doing it. And the third thing he does is figure out what's going on. Spoiler. Spoiler time, everyone. If, if you're with me at this point, folks, you, you probably watched the episode. I hope so, because the way... The... <laughs> The, the the way she wins, the way Eve DeFalco wins, the great Joan Collins looking lovely, as ever. Oh, she got these huge glasses on in the last scenes, which I, she's even the sexy in those huge glasses. She got glasses that are huge, like the woman in Eyeball, the, the wife of the guy in Eyeball. You know, I forget her character name but with the huge glasses. You, if you know Eyeball, you know those glasses. So what happens is they do that thing where they're in a huge mansion and they've got all these rich guys playing with her. And basically someone in the ceiling is looking down through them, through like a telescope in the floor, relaying things through a transmitter like, He has an ace. He has a four of diamonds. Oh, it's a royal flush. Okay, yes, he's good. Keep an eye on him. Let him win this one. Okay. Yes. The thing is, of course, is that Haven can tap into that and he can hear that and he knows that something's going on through body heat and stuff. And that's great. That's awesome. There is another short-lived show that I have not covered yet that I love 4,000% more than Future Cop. It's a show called Search. It began in early 72 with a two-hour TV movie called Probe by Leslie Stevens, the great Leslie Stevens, who created The Outer Limits and who created Gemini Man and lots of other stuff. But basically the premise behind, I'm not going to go too far into it, but it's like super high-tech spies and they have, eh, I'm not going to go into it because we'll talk about it. Hopefully I want to talk about this soon. The show, it was the two-hour TV movie and there are 23 hour-long episodes. I want to find someone who will join me for those because I think it's too many to do by myself. But it's a show I absolutely love. There isn't an episode that I dislike and they, they have fun with the format and I just, I, just, I just love it to bits. But the very first hour-long episode after the two-hour TV movie is the Murrow disappearance, and it does the exact same thing that this episode does. There's a 
card game and there is a guy or in the room up above who has all cameras but the, the difference is that the Murrow disappears the search thing is like a James Bond kind of thing where it's like there are tons of cameras and microphones and all this kind of thing and it's so crazy and it's high tech it's like what's going on whereas Future Cop is just like some guy on the floor looking through a telescope talking into a little mic and it's so chintzy uh, compared to search and and this is not Future Cop's fault, but you remind me of another short-lived show that I want to talk about more than Future Cop. Folks, I hadn't watched Future Cop before I started talking about it, and I was hoping it would wow me. This episode did not. It takes 20 minutes of its 50 to get to the point where they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. It takes over 30 minutes to sort of ingratiate Haven into this world where he's going to play with Eve. And let me just say... I am not a huge fan of the super extended Casino Royale, Daniel Craig Casino Royale card sequence. Um, I remember sitting in the theater watching the sequence going on, thinking, how long is this going on? How long are these people going to play cards and they're going to you know, intersperse like fights and Bond almost dying in his car kind of things? This isn't that interesting to me. And... This card sequence isn't that interesting to me because you never get the feeling that they're not going to win what they need to win. Whereas in Search, there's you you know he's going to win, but you don't quite know how. And this is like, who cares how they win? They're just going to win. Let's wrap this up. And yeah, I, I can't say through, through a mix of like t- taking far too long to get to the 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 gist of the episode through the bad accent that Haven does throughout to the completely lackluster card game at the a card game has to be shot just brilliantly it has it's a card game is not it's like making donuts is not interesting to watch eating donuts is fun and maybe someone saying they're going to make donuts is fun but watching someone make donuts taint interesting McGee taint interesting and this this episode is just like this is the last one you know and and I know if if you're listening you're like oh wait Dan there's another thing yeah the another thing is another thing and we're going to talk about that separately from the show the episode's proper but I I the the episode is just kind of dull to me and I don't know if it's because I had to go from the DVD to online to the DVD to back online, but I just found it not very interesting. And if this was like the last one they made, it just feels like no one cared. <laughs> like no one was interested in it. And if no one's interested in it, I, I don't know how interested I can get. I did my best. I got gung-ho about Beyond Westworld. Charlie and I kick butt talking about Manimal. But Future Cop, Girl on the Ledge, brilliant. First half of Man Man Bomber, part one, I guess, brilliant. Uh, not brilliant, very good. And the, the, the TV movie, pretty darn good. Everything else... Okay to mediocre. Sorry. 
I don't I don't mean to bring everyone down here. It's like, hey, Dan, what you doing? I, yeah, things are going to be what they're going to be. You know, sometimes they're not going to work. You know, you might watch this and go, Dan, did you not see how awesome this is? Here's what I saw. I saw a show about like a, you know, uh, I saw a show with a fun concept. I saw a show with an android cop. And maybe they're going to teach him something about humanity. They certainly don't in this episode. But they kind of really don't throughout the episodes. So that's okay that they don't. So then that means that the android cop has to be fun. And we get sort of the humanity of the show through the other two cops, through Cleaver and Bundy. We get some through Bundy, but we get nothing from Cleaver. Ernest Borgnine is playing Ernest Borgnine throughout. There's nothing else going on. I wish that I could stand up and say this show was a great time. But I don't see why they needed an android cop. They could have brought in a rookie, a super smart rookie, like a Sherlock Holmes level, brain level rookie who could have done most of the stuff. Because, I mean, apart from what what maybe two or three times over the course of the five five slash six episodes in the, in the TV movie. He gets, like, shot at. But apart from that, he, he doesn't really do much that's, like, superhuman. I mean, yeah, he listens to stuff. But I... I mean, I, I would think like you bring in like a like a Sherlock Holmes-esque young rookie or, or say maybe even like a foreign cop who has different ways of looking at things. He would like look at her, look at the way she kind of keeps putting her finger to her ear and then he'd look around and say, I think there's someone up above or somewhere who is monitoring this. That's how she knows what's going on. And it's like, I don't think they needed an android cop in this. You know, it's like... One of the things that always drove me up the wall about, say, the Incredible Hulk show, as much as I love Kenneth Johnson, Cliffhangers being the first show we talked about in here, is like, why take the concept of the Hulk and make it make it the fugitive? What? You know, because David Jensen used to solve everyone's problems. He's probably solved my problems, too. No, he, he used to solve all the problems as... You know, Mr. Kimball, or you know, no, I'm sorry, I'm making a joke there. But um, you know, he used to solve all his problems as a fugitive. He didn't need to become a huge green guy. So why do the same premise where he has to become this superhuman guy? If you're, if you, it's just the same kind of thing that like Harry O would deal with, you know, week after week, or Rockford would deal with, you know, and the same thing with this. Why an android cop in these stories? You know, I don't, looking back at them, you know, like the, 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 and then I'll, I'll wrap this up because I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean this to be a downer. I just, I just, the wasted potential of this concept and maybe the last entry in this series, which will be a mini-sode, will justify it. But the wasted concept of this, it's like, you know, like Gemini Man, the invisible thing, some episodes rely on the invisible more than others, but they did a good job. The best episodes of Gemini Man, which we haven't discussed on here, but I have on my uh, Polish American Guy Reviews.blogspot.com site. The best Gemini Mans use the invisibility well. 
this the android thing who cares it could have been anything at the end of the day you know and maybe the the the, the thing is like if they had had like a human doing those accents it maybe they would have fallen out of the accent maybe they would have been a little self-conscious but having the android do it meant that he was doing a bad accent and convinced of it so you sit there watching going that's not very good but he's convinced of it, so what do I do? But if it had been an actual human doing it and being a little embarrassed, like I don't quite have the Humphrey Bogart down, I don't quite have, you know, I don't quite have the, the Sam Spade, the Clark Gable, the whatever down, that might have been more fun. But I, I can't say I was a fan of Future Cop. I tried. I really did try. And I guess I'll wrap it up here because, like I said, we do have one more Future Cop-related thing. I think this this gang is done. You know, like, Beyond Westworld, they set up the premise, what is it, like 100 robots or whatever. So you think 100 episodes and we only get five, and okay, you know, that's fine. And they're not great, but they, they're trying. But this is just like, I, I feel like, Almost every episode of the show, including Girl on the Ledge, which I loved, could have been any other cop show at the time. Could have been any other cop show with sort of just like a cop and I guess three cops. And three cops in the car is weird to me because you put a cop in the back. That's strange. Isn't that strange having a cop in the back of the car? I I don't know about Future Cop. I'm glad we covered it because I was interested in covering it. And I will say this, and I will sign off. I got more to say, but I will say this and sign off. So it's December 26, 2018. And from December 14th to the 23rd, I was visiting family in... I'm in Los Angeles. I was visiting family in Western New York State, Marion, New York, 20 miles outside of Rochester, New York, where I grew up. I grew up in Irondequoit, which is close to Lake Ontario. So I'm there, and a lot of family came to visit us over the eight, nine, ten days I was there. And one day, the Budnicks, my namesake, uh, came to visit. And my dad's uh, siblings uh, came to visit us. Um, I saw all four of them. Um, my Aunt Elaine, who's the oldest. Then my Aunt Lynette, my Aunt Cindy, and my Uncle Raj. And I believe all of them are retired. no. I don't know if Aunt Lynette is, but I know the other ones are. My dad died back in 81, 82, so he drowned. And, uh, but, but they're all still alive and well. And I was sitting with them, and I was telling them about this podcast. And I was saying how great all you listeners are. And I said, oh, my listeners are the best. Oh, my gosh. You guys are so cool. Thank you. And I said, they said, what are you talking about? And I said, oh, Bourbon Street Beat. And I just finished Ellery Queen and Green Hornets. And I told them a show or two I'm about to talk about, which I'm not telling you right now. And I said, Future Cop. And they were kind of like, when I mentioned Bourbon Street Beat, I mentioned 77 Sunset Strip. And they were like, they were all born in the mid, like, four, mid to late 40s. So they were like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, we remember that. 77 Sunset Strip and Surfside 6. They didn't specifically remember Bourbon Street Beat, but they were good on it. I mentioned Future Cop. And my Annie Lane and my Aunt Cindy looked at me like, huh? 
And Michael Raj was like, what? Huh? What's that? And I said, oh, it's Ernest Borgnine, John Amos, and Michael Shannon. And it's an Android cop. And my uncle, my uncle, and here's the fun. Regardless of what I've said about Future Cop, here's the fun thing about this. My uncle, who does not own this DVD set, who does not listen to this podcast, looked up and said, oh yeah, I remember that. So folks, that was 1977. I was four. A month or two, three before Star Wars came out. He was the man who took me to see Raiders of the Lost Ark in the theater. He was the man who took me to see Star Trek the Motion Picture. Don't don't blame him because I enjoy that movie. I didn't enjoy I fell asleep the first time I saw it, but I enjoy it now and I'll I'll fight you for it because I, I, I think I think it's quite wonderful. Uh, but uh, but my uncle Roger is also the guy who introduced me to my favorite TV show of all time, Doctor Who. He was the one who gave me Invasion of the Dinosaurs, the novelization, and Doctor Who Discovers the Conquerors on my birthday in 1981 when I turned eight. And I said, what is this? And he said, oh, that's a show that's on PBS, WXXI, Rochester, Channel 21, uh, Monday through Friday at five. And I started watching it, and they were showing one episode, one 25-minute episode, and then they're about a year. It was Saturday. Yeah, this is a long story. Saturday night for the omnibus. and the, uh, But yeah, he's... He was the guy who remembered Future Cop and who introduced me to Doctor Who, who introduced me to Sherlock Holmes, Monty Python, and like regular British sitcoms. He was the one who said, "Cause, all right, I'm just, I'm gonna go off on a tangent just because this is the day after Christmas, and I'm done talking about Future Cop." But he was the one who said to me, "I I watched." Uh, Python. I started watching Python. He said, you might enjoy watching this. And every time I would watch it, I would laugh and laugh and laugh. I was nine or ten. And my mom would always walk in when there was a naked lady on the animation or a few times in, in real life because they would show the episodes uncut uh, on there. So like the dull life of the city stockbroker when he walks in the... um. Uh, magazine store it's not a magazine store wherever to, to pick up his newspaper and there's a topless woman with the you know the large uh, uh, breasts uh, and it's like and it's like I'm I'm 10 watching this going what the heck but it was all part of the comedy and it's me that and Sherlock Holmes and a lot of James Bond that he was the one I watched live and let die with um it was I was staying with him at his apartment. My my mom was out of town on a date after my dad died, and so I was with him. And at eight to eleven, they were showing Live and Let Die. If you know Live and Let Die, you know it's two hours and one minute long. So you're thinking three hours. That meant that every four or five minutes there was a commercial break. By the time we got to ten o'clock, two hours into the screening of it, or the showing of it. We were in hysterics because there were so many commercials. I now own Live and Let Die on Blu-ray. I can watch it over the course of two hours and one minute whenever I want. But we were in hysterics. And that was also the night we were expecting like Hand of Fear. That was when, that was in that space where they were just showing seasons 12 through 15. But then they suddenly showed Nightmare of Eden. It was like, what's going on? So 
it was weird. It was it was weird and wonderful. And he Monty Python and that and 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 he said, oh, tune in like Sunday nights at like nine or ten, and then Thursday nights are nine or ten. These are so British sitcoms. He said, oh, tune in to like Thursday at ten. There's a show called The Good Neighbors that you might like, and that's The Good Life. And I still watch The Good Life and love it. And so this was my uncle who remembered Future Cop, who who thought of it fondly when he said he didn't say oh that piece of whatever he said oh yeah i remember that he was excited about it so i'm not gonna argue that so future cop yeah he he liked it and i i didn't quite like it but i'm not gonna argue about it you know it's another show on our belt notch it up on the belt so that's Future Cop, everyone, and it might not be done yet. So, 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 uh, feel free to to calm down, pay attention, have a good time. And I'm going to stop right here, and we are going to go a couple of snaps to this. Ah, Future Cop, you were as enjoyed as you could be enjoyed. How about that? That is episode 61, everyone, saying goodbye to 2018. Yay! We will see you in February 2019. Now, what's going to happen in January of 2019? You are all going to go out and be your best and be awesome. Would you please? I will do my best to be awesome. Yeah, there is going to be at least one mini-sode in January finishing up the Future Cop saga. There might be another one. I don't know. There might not be. Check your feed. Check your feed. I, I also might be working on a new minute-by-minute minute something or other soon. I haven't picked the movie yet, but I, I'd like to do another one. It's been... Well, it's been it's been two months now since I, since I did one with the last Lumber Party Minute, so I, I do quite enjoy doing those, so... Again, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, let's see, where are we? Uh, eSuperTrain at yahoo.com, at eSuperTrain1 on Twitter, eventually SuperTrain on Facebook, eventually SuperTrain.blogspot.com is the website, and all sorts of other great stuff. I've still got some reviews on Bleeding Skull, not very many now. They've kind of all come down over time, but there are some still on there. And Made for TV Mayhem show, there's Podcast Mania, there are my books, Bleeding Skull, 1980s Trash Horror Odyssey, 80s action movies on the cheap, and yeah. Thank you so much everyone for listening. Here's to 2019, and um, here's to, uh, where are we going to get? We'll hit at least episode 80, hopefully, in the next year and hopefully we, there won't be any goof-ups like there there were some goof-ups this year there were some goof-ups last year but i hope everyone enjoyed themselves and i'm going to leave you with a bit more of this
Tickets. Tickets. Let's have your tickets. Tickets. Let's have your tickets. Don't get excited.